afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Harvard Divinity School's Bicentennial Convocation on this beautiful late summer day. We planned this six months ago with all the best meteorological advice. <laughs> Today, we celebrate not only the opening of a new academic year, but also the start of a year-long celebration during which we will remember our past, reflect on our role at Harvard and in the wider world today, and look to the opportunities and challenges of our third century. In the months ahead, the HDS campus will be the site of some outstanding events. I'm sure that some of you have already had a look at Faces of Divinity, the extraordinary exhibit unveiled this afternoon that charts HDS's opening to new voices and new ideas across the decades. My deep thanks go to Professor Anne Browdy, under whose direction and indefatigable labors the exhibit was produced. We're all grateful to Anne and her team of researchers. And thanks to everyone who helped her with that exhibition. It really is wonderful to um, uh, travel around our campus and have a look at it. Today's keynote address by my predecessor, George Rupp, the school's t uh, 12th dean, will set the bar high for the many scholars and speakers who will join us at HDS this year. As you can imagine, there will be many highlights, and I encourage you to stay tuned for many outstanding lectures, events, conferences, milestones, especially parties, and highlights throughout the year. Before we get started, it's my privilege and honor today to welcome Harvard University's president, Drew Gilpin Faust, a distinguished historian and advocate of the arts and humanities. Her participation in convocation today is a recognition both of the critical role that Harvard's leaders have played in the school's founding and advancement, and as she recently wrote in the Harvard Magazine, to HDS's place as a pinnacle of pluralism and a powerful convener of experts from across the university. I especially want to thank President Faust for her steadfast support of the Divinity School, for being the best boss a person could ever have, and for joining us today in the midst of a very demanding convocation schedule. She's already spoken at the college convocation, uh, the talk of which, or the, the script of which, is now on the web, and it is worth reading. We're honored by your presence and deeply grateful for all you've done for HDS, including launching our capital campaign with such stirring words only a few years ago. So thank you. Let me also welcome our incoming and returning students, colleagues on the faculty, HDS and Harvard staff, alumni, friends, and guests. We are very delighted you are all here. Finally, a word of thanks to everyone who helped put together today's festivities. My gratitude goes out in particular to our musicians, especially Harry Huff, who always organizes our program with immense care and thought, to all our readers, and last but not least, to the staff members in the Office for Academic Affairs and the Dean's Office, who organized this year's convocation. A heartfelt thank you and a round of applause to all of you. We're grateful. In the interest of keeping the service flowing, it's now my pleasure to briefly introduce George Rupp, who will be giving our convocation address a little later in the program. George Rupp is currently a distinguished visiting scholar at Columbia University's Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Affairs, as well as adjunct professor of religion, public health, and international affairs. He has served as president of Columbia and Rice Universities as well as the International Rescue Committee. Before that, however, as many of you know, he received his PhD from Harvard and was the John Lord O'Brien Professor of Divinity and Dean of Harvard Divinity School from 1979 to 1985. During his leadership, George Rupp set the Divinity School on a path to a more pluralistic curriculum, and he supported the engagement of religion with other Harvard graduate schools including medicine and public health. Today, our faculty, students, and our degree programs still benefit from his vision and foresight to expand the range of questions on the table at HDS and to diversify the Harvard Divinity School. 
Last year, Dr. Up published an important book called Beyond Individualism, The Challenge of Inclusive Communities, in which he draws on his experience in educational leadership in the United States, as well as his on-the-ground activism with the International Rescue Committee. The book suggests that Western individualism, for all its obvious strengths, has led to a dead end, and that secular individualism consistently underestimates the power of religion in both global affairs and in supplying much-needed resources for communities across the world. Along the way, he describes the negative consequences of American provincialism, advocates the importance of religion and the humanities in higher education, identifies the biggest challenges to global flourishing that face us, including ecological threats and global inequality, and asks searching questions about the nature of the good life and what it means to be engaged creatively for the common good in the current global order. It is in the best sense a tract for the times and a must read for anyone interested in religion, higher education, and the world order. A true friend of our school for many decades, I can think of no one better than George Rubb to give us his perspective on the future of HDS and its distinctive mission to illuminate, engage, and serve. We look forward very much to hearing your advice and counsel on the challenges of Harvard Divinity School's third century. Thank you so much for coming. And to Nancy, his wife, thank you so much. But now it's my honor and privilege to invite President Drew Faust uh, to the lectern and ask her for the university's words of welcome and greeting for our bicentennial convocation. Drew, we are so delighted to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, David, for <clears throat> inviting me to this wonderful event and including me in your celebration. It's a pleasure to welcome all the visitors who are here for this event to Harvard and the Harvard Divinity School in a very special year of celebration and reflection. We're here today because our predecessors made a choice 200 years ago to support the establishment of a theological school and with it, the pursuit of knowledge and the aims of higher education. But there was something more in what they set in motion. A decade after the school's founding in 1816, William Ellery Channing, an early advocate, Harvard College alumnus, and well-known Unitarian minister, addressed a crowd gathered for the dedication of Divinity Hall. He said, we want more than knowledge. We want force of thought, feeling, and purpose. We want powerful ministers, men fitted to act on men to make themselves felt in society. Now, women's power, we know, was to be felt sometime later and ever since. And I proudly wear robes that are meant to be those of an early divine of Harvard uh, origin. So I'm sure that shocks all those people in their graves. But we've managed to make a little progress on that gender front. But if you think about what William Ellery Channing said, force of thought, feeling, and purpose. The community we celebrate with this 200th birthday embodies Channing's aspiration and also expands it. The powerful combination of education and action in pursuit of Veritas has broadened from, to use the words of its early supporters, the serious, impartial, and unbiased investigation of Christian truth to the robust academic and professional study of all faiths and their place in the world. Here we see dozens of religious affiliations and no affiliation represented. Here we see a community more diverse and more dynamic than its founders could possibly have imagined. Here we see a pinnacle of pluralism rising in a complex global landscape. This community embraces students from across and beyond the university. 
a concentration in the comparative study of religion challenges our undergraduates to see their world in broader contexts. And some of you, I'm sure, are enrolled in a new joint PhD program offered in conjunction with the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Meanwhile, the Religious Literacy Project deepens the public's understanding of religion through educational resources, and its marvelous Harvard X course, World Religions Through Their Scriptures, has attracted some 100,000 online learners from more than 180 countries to modules on Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and Judaism. Leading these and many other efforts is your remarkable dean. And it's not just because he said I was a good boss that I call him that. You know him, many of you know him, others of you will come to know him as a deeply humane leader who believes that knowledge can change the world. If you are looking for a model of collaboration and creativity, of generosity and goodness, look to him and to his work. Dean Hempton's Religions and the Practice of Peace initiative brings together scholars and practitioners to discuss how humanity might solve shared problems, build a more just world, and create sustainable peace. And it is a model for what Harvard can achieve by convening the world's thinkers and doers. You are celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Divinity School at a moment of extraordinary promise for universities and extraordinary challenges for humanity. Halting climate change, understanding and addressing inequality, extending and enhancing human life. These aspirations are matters of design, education, engineering, law, medicine, and business, the list goes on. Deciding how we pursue these ends is important, but understanding why we pursue them is indispensable. Here, the Divinity School holds particular sway, helping to reveal the motives and values that guide so much of what human beings choose to attempt and hope to achieve. Yours is, as Professor Kimberly Patton recently put it, one of the oldest and most persistent realms of human experience. The Harvard Divinity School has expanded its inquiry and its influence for 200 years, deepening the world's understanding of what it can and what it ought to contribute to some of the greatest challenges of our time. Its remarkable and accomplished alumni have ministered to members of their communities, applied their knowledge in fields wide-ranging, the ones I've mentioned, and many more. And they've made important contributions to arts and culture. Today, you celebrate a forceful community, a community of consideration and contemplation, of affirmation and action. And together, we celebrate this bicentennial with renewed faith in the Harvard Divinity School with enhanced hope for a world perhaps more in need of its expertise and its compassion than ever before. Happy birthday, HDS. May the whole year of celebration be one of learning together and of moving this remarkable institution forward. Thank you very much. A reading from the Bhagavad Gita. 
Freeing himself from individuality, force, pride, desire, anger, acquisitiveness, unpossessive, tranquil, he is at one with the infinite spirit. Being at one with the infinite spirit, serene in himself, he does not grieve or crave. Impartial toward all creatures, he achieves supreme devotion to me. Through devotion, he discerns me, just who and how vast I really am. And knowing me in reality, he enters into my presence. Always performing all actions, taking refuge in me, he attains through my grace the eternal place beyond change. Through reason, renounce all works in me, focus on me. Relying on the discipline of understanding, always keep me in your thought. If I am in your thought, by my grace, you will transcend all dangers. But if you are deafened by individuality, you will be lost. This knowledge I have taught is more arcane than any mystery. Consider it completely, then act as you choose. Listen to my profound words, the deepest mystery of all, for you are precious to me, and I tell you for your good. Keep your mind on me, be my devotee, sacrificing, bow to me. You will come to me, I promise, for you are dear to me. Relinquishing all sacred duties to me, make me your only refuge. Do not grieve, for I shall free you from all evils. Readings from the Mishnah, first from Mishnah Sanhedrin. The laws of non-capital cases are not like the laws of capital cases. In non-capital cases, a person pays money and thus attains atonement. But in capital cases, the witness is responsible for the blood of the one who he falsely accused and for the blood of all the descendants he would have had till the end of the world. That is why only one person was created in the beginning, in order to teach you that if one has caused even a single life to perish, it is as if he has caused an entire world to perish. And if one has saved even one life, it is as if he has kept an entire world alive. Again, it was for the sake of peace among humankind that only one person was created, so that nobody could say to anybody else, my father was greater than your father, and so that the heretics could not say that there are many ruling powers in heaven. This proclaims the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be he. For a person stamps many coins in one mold, and they all resemble one another. But the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he, has stamped each person in the mold of the first person, and yet not one of them is like any other. Therefore, each and every person must say, for my sake, the world was created. A reading from a vote, the ethics of the fathers. Hillel said, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Hillel said, don't separate yourself from the community. Don't be sure of yourself until the day you die. Don't judge another person until you have been in his place. And don't say, when I have spare time, I'll study. For you may never have spare time. <laughs> And finally, a reading from Mishnah Makot. Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashia said, the Holy One, blessed be he, 
wanted to confer merit on the people Israel. That is why he gave them a copious Torah and many commandments, as scripture said, it pleased the Lord for the sake of Israel's righteousness to make the Torah great and glorious. This is from the Bodhicharya Avatara, chapter seven. <clears throat> the sage has sung that desire is the root of all skillful deeds. And the root of that is meditating upon resulting consequences. Sufferings, feelings of dejection, and many different fears and impediments to their desires befall those who do evil. The heart's delight of those who do good is worshiped with a welcoming reception of fruit wheresoever it goes, a consequence of their meritorious deeds. But the desire for pleasure of those who do evil is smitten by the weapons of suffering wheresoever it goes, as a consequence of their evil deeds. After first assessing the full implications, one should either begin or not begin. Surely not beginning is better than turning back once one has begun. This is a habit that continues even in another life, and from its evil, suffering increases. Another life and opportunity for action, both loss and the task not accomplished. One should strive for pride in three areas. Action, the secondary defilements, and ability. It is I alone who can do it expresses pride in action. This world is totally subject to the defilements, incapable of, of accomplishing its own benefit. Therefore, I must do it for them. I am not incapable, as is humankind. How is it that another does despised work while I stand by? If I do not do it because of pride, better to let my pride be destroyed. Even a crow acts like an eagle when attacking a dead lizard. If my mind is weak, even a minor difficulty is oppressive. When one is made passive by defeatism, without doubt, difficulties easily take effect. But exerting oneself and invigorate one is hard to defeat even for great calamities. So with a firm mind, I shall make difficulty for difficulty. A reading from the Gospel as recorded by Luke. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, the lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving the man half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed on by the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near the man. And when the Samaritan saw the man, he was moved with pity. The Samaritan went to the man and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then the Samaritan put the man on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. not need to be especially observant to know that I am not uh, Taimul Abdul Rahman, but in his absence I have been asked to read his portion. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. The likeness of his light is as a niche wherein is a lamp, the lamp in a glass, the glass as it were a glimmering star, kindled from a tree, a blessed tree, an olive that is neither from the east nor of the west, whose oil well nigh would shine even if no fire touched it. Light upon light, God guides to his light whom he will. To you, my Lord, I complain of my weakness, lack of support and the humiliation I am made to receive, most compassionate and merciful. You are the Lord of the weak, and you are my Lord. To whom do you leave me? To a distant person who receives me with hostility? Or to an enemy you have given power over me? As long as you are not displeased with me, I do not care what I face. I would, however, be much happier with your mercy. I seek refuge in the light of your face by which all darkness is dispelled and both this life and the life that is to come are put in their right course against incurring your wrath or being the subject of your anger. To you I submit until I earn your pleasure, everlasting, powerless, without your support. Everything is powerless without your support. 
God, there is no God but he, the living one, the everlasting slumber seizes him not, neither sleep. To him belongs all that is in the heaven and the earth. Who is there that shall intercede with him save by his leave? He knows what lies before them and what is after them, and they comprehend not anything of his knowledge save such as he wills. His throne comprises the heavens and the earth. The preserving of them oppresses him not. He is the all-high, the all-glorious. If I were prudent, I would say amen and sit down. <laughs> we have heard powerful and eloquent words from Dean Hampton and President Faust. We have been treated to a selection of readings from the major world religions, and we have heard six wonderfully appropriate brief musical interludes, although there are much more than interludes. So I should just say thank you very much for inviting me, and let's all go to the reception. <laughs> but as President Faust and, and Dean Hampton have said, it is really an exciting time to be observing the bicentennial of Harvard Divinity School. And I am, in fact, deeply honored to be given the opportunity of speaking with you on that occasion. One of the reasons it's exciting to celebrate the bicentennial of the Divinity School is that there was an extended period, one that many of us experienced personally, when religion was widely construed by, in the academy to be a relic, a remnant of the past, and therefore an exercise in nostalgia doomed to expire in the near future with the triumph of one variant or another of secular liberalism. <clears throat> Today, fewer of our colleagues in this and other leading universities are so confident about the imminent demise of religious allegiance and action. Even when the impact of religion may be deemed to be less than positive, even perverse, its pervasive influence cannot be denied. It is therefore all the more apt that we consider carefully the mandate of Harvard Divinity School for the years, decades, and centuries ahead. Admittedly, with, with some ambivalence, I've decided to organize my remarks around three metaphors that are quite mundane, literally from the worlds of geography and physics rather than to enlist the more ethereal reference points that might be better befit this august occasion. But we've had those reference points in some ways in the music and the readings that we've heard so far. The three mundane metaphors are guideposts, magnetic attraction, and energy generation. I hope that the realities to which the metaphors point will be less routine or mundane. 
The metaphor of guidepost refers to the readings that we have all just heard and are printed in our programs for further reflection. The five selections of passages are an ever so slight, yet also immensely weighty representation of the shared depth of resources from the world's religious traditions that have shaped the multiple history that we have all experienced and that will continue to shape what is emerging as an increasingly common future. I would like to express my appreciation to the, for the joint effort of colleagues here at Harvard who have contributed toward what admittedly remains an arbitrary and infinitesimally small selection from the enormous range of available readings. I express as well the hope that we may indeed find guidance from such passages, both in our living and in shaping precious institutions like Harvard Divinity School. While I am pleased to invoke these passages as guideposts for us, I am sure you will be relieved to hear that I do not plan to take this time to offer in detail my interpretation of each passage. Instead, I will turn to the second of my down-to-earth metaphors and take a few minutes to note the ways in which Harvard Divinity School serves as a continuing force of attraction for all of us who enter into its magnetic field. I hope that you will indulge me if I offer a few reflections on my own experience of this magnetic attraction in the hope that my experience will have at least some resonance with your own. I remember telling incoming students in the fall of 1979 that I was so irresistibly drawn to Harvard Divinity School that I was moving to it for the fifth time in 12 years. I will not go into detail about all that movement, but I will suggest its range by noting the places from which our family moved to Harvard Divinity School. First, only my wife Nancy and I, then Nancy, our older daughter Kathy and I, and for, the, and for the last three times, Nancy, Kathy, and our younger daughter Stephanie and I. The five places in, in order are New Haven, Connecticut, where you probably remember there is a sister in university. Candy, Sri Lanka, then still called Ceylon. Redlands, California, Pfeffingen, Germany, and Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, that's quite an array of places that uh, uh, have never been quite able to sustain holding me there. The attraction was powerful, not only for me, but also for our whole family. During those years, I had the privilege of studying and then teaching Christian theology and Western philosophy, religion and the social sciences, comparative religious worldviews. Our family also had the invaluable opportunity to live in and with the HDS community. First in the Center for the Study of World Religions for three years, and then in Jewett House for six years. Both of our daughters are now cultural anthropologists. I'm certain that the powerful impulse toward that field resulted from living in the Center for the Study of World Religions when we were often the only family from the United States in a close-knit residential community of a little over 20 units. Similarly, in, in Jewett House, that, that stately, uh, I can't help but say mansion, uh, across the street, we had the friendship and also the help of HDS students who lived in the house with us over those years. All in all, the Divinity School shaped our everyday living in a myriad of ways. At the time and since, I have felt uneasy, even conflicted, about leaving the Divinity School as soon as I did, after only six years as dean did not help my uneasiness that the president of the university, uh, President Faust, your distinguished 
predecessor, Derek Bach, had pressed me quite vigorously to stay. And also that so many of my colleagues made it clear they were sorry to see me go. Yet I have also always been vividly aware that I never did fully leave. In my subsequent work at Rice and Columbia and the International Rescue Committee, I've continued to press the agenda of a global orientation and a concern with engaging ongoing social challenges. As a result, coming back to HDS over the years, including this visit, has always felt like a re returning to an intellectual and, yes, spiritual home. For me, the Divinity School has then exercised a powerful attraction over the 49 years since Nancy and I first moved here. I know that many of you have had the same experience, and I look forward to hearing more about, your, about that experience and how it has affected your lives in the reception later and in other occasions. I am also quite confident in predicting that those of you who are just beginning your time here will never quite escape its magnetic power. It would be wonderful if we could gather here simply to celebrate the magnetic power of Harvard Divinity School. There certainly is that magnetic power. It draws us to a proud history of accomplishment that exemplifies worthy goals. But we all know as well that theological education and the study of religion are under enormous pressure from powerful secular trends and also from a variety of religious movements. For that reason, along with celebrating its magnetic power, we must wrestle with the challenge of generating the energy required for HDS to continue to be a vigorous and influential force. As we envision the future of institutions, it is critical that we focus on, on the strengths that need to be preserved and enhanced. The crucial goal must be to focus on the core identity of the institution and to build forcefully on those key features of that identity. To make the institution more itself rather than to succumb to the, the temptation to have it imitate some other institution. That is our challenge for Harvard Divinity School as we move into a third century. I propose that there are three core strengths on which we should focus. Strengths I'm delighted to say that were wonderfully illustrated in the panel that many of us heard at 1.30 this morning. Those three core sets of strengths are first, the capacity to ground students of all ages in the core traditions of their own communities, including respectful comparisons to other traditions sympathetically understood. Second, a commitment not only to the descriptive study of multiple traditions, but also to normative appraisals based on a comparative assessments of the impact religious convictions have on the broader society. And third, a concern to pre prepare leaders, both for particular religious communities and also for engaging the dimensions of ethics and values in societies around the world, and indeed in the emerging global community toward which we aspire. Harvard has extremely impressive resources for grounding students of all ages in particular cultures. Framed in terms of languages, there is, of course, instruction in the full range of European tongues. We also have access to the languages for precious texts and for understanding across lines of conflict or ethnic differences. To name only a few examples, Arabic as well as Hebrew, Sanskrit and Hindi, and also Urdu and Telugu and Tamil, Mandarin and also Yue and Uyghur. 
Access to a remarkable range of language instruction represents the fact that students can pursue deep understanding of both their own traditions and also the languages and cultures of other communities. This enormous capacity built up over generations offers the Divinity School a resource that few of our peers can come even close to matching. The, resources, the resource itself, of course, belongs to the university. But the Divinity School, in reflecting on its third century, must continue to cultivate its own commitment to it. Every student should develop a deep engagement with at least one religious tradition, and in most cases, a sympathetic awareness of at least one further tradition that allows a comparative dimension to his or her studies. A second of the core strengths of Harvard Divinity School over its history has been the extent to which it has insisted that normative issues are appropriately addressed in the university. As we all know, there have been times when the emphasis of the academy has been almost exclusively on its crucial descriptive role, to understand and report what has happened in the past and the dynamics of current interactions. That has been true even of religious studies in universities. The Divinity School certainly shares this emphasis, as its study of particular traditions illustrates powerfully. But at its best, HDS has also pressed for engaging the issues of adequacy, of values, yes, of truth. Judgments on such issues are no doubt relative, which is what warrants our apprehension about absolute or unqualified claims for any specific interpretation. Still, the Divinity School has a proud tradition of pursuing normative questions, even when the setting of the academy clearly prefers to resist such inquiry. This normative dimension is most explicit in such traditional fields as systematic theology and ethics. Its implications are also evident in applied parts of the curriculum, field, <coughs> field work, for example, and also shared worship experiences. But across the range of studies at HDS, there can be and should be a persistent awareness of the ways in which claims about values and truth are not only present, but also invite attention. Such claims are, in any case, intrinsic to religious traditions. But they are also at least implicitly present in the impact that religious communities have on the broader society. It is therefore not only appropriate, but in the end required that such claims be subjected to appraisal as to relative adequacy, a task that the Divinity School can and should continue to undertake in its third century. We are celebrating the bicentennial of Harvard Divinity School, as is appropriate, since the Divinity School was founded as a discrete entity in 1816. But it is also the 380th anniversary of the founding of Harvard in 1636 as an institution dedicated to the preparation of religious leaders, as President Faust indicated in her comments. As is stated in New England's First Fruits, published in 1643, after God carried us safe to New England and we had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the, in the dust. As this passage prosaically yet also eloquently states, the education of religious leaders was at the core of Harvard's aspirations from the beginning. In an institution that is intentionally multi-religious and insistent on comparative study and normative appraisal that does not take any one authority is self-evident, preparing religious leaders is challenging. 
Yet professionals who can lead in such complex settings are precisely what our world and our religious traditions desperately need. Preparing leaders who can address this set of challenges must therefore continue to be part of the agenda for Harvard Divinity School. Those who study here need not aspire to be and certainly will not all become leaders of particular religious communities. But some will to, to the benefit of those communities and the whole of our civic life. Of those who pursue other paths, many will help all of us to discern and appraise and develop the religious dimension of the broader culture, including its incipiently global dimensions. The institutional setting for this role may well be the academy, but it may also be other social, political, economic, and artistic realms. Leadership in all of these arenas of our shared life will demand the attention to particular traditions, including to comparative dimensions and normative concerns that characterize the education and research at the Divinity School. It is therefore crucial that this broadly professional role remain salient in the years and decades and centuries ahead. I am confident that HCS will continue to provide grounding in the rich traditions of multiple religious communities. To call attention to the normative impact of religious commitments on the broader society. And to prepare leaders to engage the religious dimension of our emerging global culture. On this occasion, we celebrate the impressive accomplishments and positive trajectory of the Divinity School in addressing these crucial challenges. Together, we look forward as well to shaping the next chapter of this remarkable story. Thank you for your attention and for your continuing work with, with and for this wonderful institution. Thank you. George, we're grateful to you for sharing uh, almost half a century now of your own connection to the Divinity School. And we're delighted that you still feel a magnetic connection to us. And long may it be so. Thank you also for reminding us of our core identity and mission as we seek to prepare leaders for another century of distinguished service to the world. We are very grateful. So our convocation is now officially over. But please join us for some celebratory convocation cake at the back of the tent. We have um, a beautifully baked birthday cake, which I've spent hours on. <laughs> so please come uh, and eat. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and have a good evening. Thank you.